This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be. Hey everyone, we're back for episode 11. We're doing a couple new things with this case. We have Megan, who has previously been on as a discussant, now transitioning to the role of host, and she's going to lead us in a case today. We're in mid-November now. we got Thanksgiving coming up. I'm in the middle of residency interviews, five or six in at this point, had one today. Excited to get back to recording and doing another episode. Dr. Abrams is here with us. Glad to be here. Just like uh, Kevin, we've started our residency interviews this week. So I, I had my practice run on Tuesday with, uh, fortunately, with, with, with real people. But uh, it is great. It's, it's pretty wonderful doing this. And uh, I hope all the people out there that are going through the process find it is really find it as fun as it, and as exciting as, as we do on our end. Interview I had today, they had a noon conference and it was a clinical reasoning exercise and they had us as applicants like participate in the chat, which was fun. And I caught onto the diagnosis probably on the second aliquot and it's totally because I was biased and presented an extremely similar case to the clinical problem solvers. It was a case of HLH. And just right away, like the data was screaming HLH. So it was fun to kind of show off and pretend I was smarter than I actually am. But. <laughs> and with that, we have Megan here with us. Hey, everyone. I'm Megan. Uh, I was a discussant on a previous podcast, and now I'll be leading um, my friends Nick and Anna, who are two of my classmates. Um, I met Anna interview day when I interviewed here. And Nick was one of my first friends in medical school. So it's great to be kind of talking through things with them. And I'm excited to to present. Thanks, Megan, for having us. I'm super excited. This is uh, my first podcast. So, um, yeah, really excited for it. Um, just, I guess, brief introduction. I'm from LA and here in Chicago for medical school. I'm an M3. Uh, right now, my interests are super broad. I like ER. I like IM. So we'll see. We'll see how the future goes. But yeah, excited to be here. My name is Anna. Thank you for inviting me, Megan. I'm truly honored to be the discussant on your first hosted podcast. <laughs> I'm also an M3, also from California. I think I'm interested in OB-GYN, but time will tell. Awesome. All right. Well, I think with that, we can get started. And so I'll just head into the first aliquot. So here we have a 33-year-old woman presenting with a three-month history of worsening abdominal pain. What's your guys' approach to this? Three months, so seems to be chronic. I like to separate abdominal pain based on like the acuity. I'm thinking acute versus chronic seems to be chronic. Um, also looking at the age, 33-year-old woman, so with abdominal pain, genders, important. So thinking about things like pregnancy, um, passive abdominal surgeries, all those kinds of things. Also, I want to know like the time force, if it's intermittent or constant, if it's comes around her menstrual cycle, what her menstrual cycles are like, other associated symptoms she's had. Awesome. So yeah, abdominal pain is obviously a very broad kind of chief complaint. You can localize to almost any organ system. Um, so just abdominal pain in and of itself can't really tell you too much, but I like how you guys are kind of breaking it down by the time force and the age and the gender. That will move on to our Real quick, how would you guys prioritize an intra-abdominal cause of abdominal pain? How would you form a differential around that? I'm, so localization, yeah. definitely. I, I mean, I'm going to want to know where the pain is, if it's generalized or if it's in a particular quadrant. Does it move around? Um, and yeah, thinking anatomically with the abdomen um, can help you. And exacerbating factors, yeah. moving factors. I feel like a lot of your thinking going forward will be dependent on ROS type questions and then just further history gathering. All right. So our patient had been in good health until she started experiencing persistent abdominal pain and distension associated with nausea, vomiting, loose stools, decreased appetite, and weight loss. What is this making you think of? I have some associated symptoms here. I'd like to know, you know, 
did the symptoms start with the pain? Did the pain come first? You know, weight loss, decreased appetite, loose stools. It could be like a malabsorption process as well. Um, so trying to think, think about how that relates to pain. So, yeah. I'd want to know if like anything happened before this all started. It could be like a, an infection causing it, like an H. pylori or something, like a more chronic infection. If he's had any fevers, if he was traveling before all this started. We were talking a little bit about localization before. Does this kind of localize to the GI tract for you guys, or is there other organ systems that maybe you'd be thinking about? I'd probably start my evaluation with the GI tract based on the symptoms. I would agree. Yeah. And then if it doesn't yield anything, maybe think about other systems. Anything specifically you'd be super concerned about with this patient? She's young, but of course, like malignancy is something you'd have to think about, especially the chronic nature of it with weight loss. Um, so is there any family history of malignancy in the bowel, anything like that? It's something you would be concerned about for sure. And anytime someone's losing weight from not eating, you worry about a lot of like electrolyte abnormalities, their chronic problems that come from that. Yeah, those are all really good ones. One of the things I think about as I go through cases like this is to think about, so if I have five things up there, six things, which one is the most unusual? And, and so what symptom stands out? Because there's a lot of, I don't want to say there's signal and noise because maybe there's just a lot of signal and something's giving the biggest signal. And I just wonder what you guys think of, of everything up there stands out the most and say, boy, you know, abdominal pain, which you've already said is common and can be a lot of different things. But is there one piece that, that seems to stand out that's, that, that, that makes you latch onto a little bit and may help guide your diagnosis or thought process? The weight loss is definitely more concerning. The other symptoms are pretty vague and could be, you know, they're not very specific to anything. Um, but the weight loss indicates that the malabsorption that's going on is like very significant also, and that's been going on for a while. Yeah, also vomiting too. Um, with you're having three months of pain, but you're also vomiting. Um, you know, abdominal pain can be super vague, but if someone's vomiting, that's, it's, you know, I think that's something that stands out to me a little bit. No, that's great. Yeah. Like both what Nick and Anna said, and personally, I would, I would turn to the weight loss um, like Anna said, but I first want to like ask her more about the weight loss kind of characterize it. See, unintentional, intentional. We have a setting of decreased appetite, nausea, and vomiting. So there's reasons why she could have weight loss there. Um, but also keeping in mind that this has been going on for three months. And if she truly wasn't eating, the patient in front of us would look differently, right? So we could get some clues from that, but I think it, it'd be worthwhile to narrow our thinking based on that weight loss. And then in the setting of vomiting and abdominal pain. See, it's so funny. We all, we all, I say that, and then we all key on different things <laughs> because I know where I key on. I, I, I'm asking you, Megan, what would you key on? Yeah, I think I'm going to follow the crowd here, but I think the weight loss too. But I think I want to know more just exactly how much weight loss is it? Like, is it a pound or two pounds over three months? I'm not that concerned. Has she lost like 15 or 16 pounds over three months? I think that that definitely is more concerning. And um, you kind of think like acute versus chronic. And is this someone that like is really sick you're really worried about? Um, usually people that are having symptoms for three months, I don't think you're kind of as concerned for an acute emergency, but if she's coming in with like 20 pounds of weight loss, I think that that's something that you should kind of prioritize is even though it has been going on for longer, something maybe more emergent and something you need to take more seriously. See, it's so funny because I key on the <laughs> distension. Really? Okay. <laughs> because I'm saying she's losing weight and yet her belly's getting bigger. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I guess I just thought that meant like she was bloated, but that depending on like what she looks like, that could be pretty concerning. Yeah. How would you break apart your thinking with distension? I, 
there's when you really talk about distension, you start thinking what things really distend your belly. Yeah, if, it, yeah. if it's meaningful, what distends your belly? And then you go back to things that you guys have already mentioned. You know, could it be a tumor? Could it be a this? Could it be a that? So she's losing weight, but but her belly's getting bigger. Right? This seems like such a, a funny com- combination to me. I, I also think now that I'm kind of taking a step back and looking at this, common things being common, all of these are associated with pregnancy. I think that we would need to rule out pregnancy right away because weight loss shouldn't. You can early on. <laughs> That's fine. You're right. Three you're months right, in right. though. There's a reason you were invited. You want? <laughs> That's not why people get pregnant. <laughs> Anything else, Megan? You want to move on to the next aliquot? Yeah, I think we're ready to move on to the next one. All right. So here we have aliquot three. Uh, no past medical history for her. She doesn't take any medications except for occasional acetaminophen. Family history unremarkable. No tobacco use, infrequent alcohol use, and then no illicit substance use. Um, anything kind of on this that either adds to your differential, kind of takes things away from it, and helps you to prioritize things? Not really. Yeah, I mean, it's this is it's definitely it makes the diagnosis harder when there's not something obvious in the prior history. Um, I guess something we didn't talk about was medications and yeah. Um, I mean, too. yeah, exactly. With, with I mean, with her picture and all all that, it would be hard to say a medication caused all that, but could could it making have been making things worse? Yeah, so this rules that out. Um, yeah, I think that this aliquot makes it a little bit tougher to hone in on something extremely specific. I'd love to know our gynecological history and sexual history as well. And if we said she had been drinking, let's say like six to seven alcoholic beverages a week, is there anything that that would kind of make you think more of? Or? I mean, for the weight loss and all those kinds of things, it was six or, six or seven a week, you said? That's what she told you. Six or seven a week, I don't think would change based on this. If six or seven or a day, then you'd start thinking about like more nutrition and all the effects that that can have on the GI system. But yeah. And then going along with Megan's logic, what if she told you she frequently used marijuana? How would that fit into this picture or could it? Yeah, I mean, you could start thinking about like hyperemesis syndrome from marijuana use. It would also be a little bit confusing because people get the munchies when they smoke yeah. a lot. And if she's having a decreased appetite, that's maybe even more concerning. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Anything you want to add, Dr. Abrams, here? No, I think you guys are doing great so far. I mean, I guess one thing it tells us is, is although she may have a chronic abdominal pain, this is not a known, a known chronic illness that is showing manifestations to abdominal pain. Right. So there's nothing there that says that. Says that that yes, we talk about inherited diseases. There, there's nothing obvious that would stand out. Although, remember, so many diseases can manifest themselves so many different ways that 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 you know pass down through generations. But there's there's not much there to tie this to something before. Mm-hmm. All right. So moving on to the next aliquot. Everything so far has kind of been not really helping to narrow it down to something specific. Maybe pointing to the GI tract a little bit. Um, but here we have the physical exam, which hopefully will give you a little more data on. Uh, help to narrow your thought process. So for her vital, she has a temperature of 101, heart rate is 107, blood pressure is 130 over 84, and she's adding 99% on two liters. Um, for HENT exam, she has mild scleral icterus. Her neck is supple with distended neck veins. She has decreased breath sounds at the basis. Um, for a cardiac exam, she's mildly tachycardic with a normal S1, S2, no S3 or S4, and a grade three out of six holosystolic murmur. Um, on her abdominal exam, significant distension with shifting dullness and mild diffuse tenderness. Her extremities, she has two plus edema bilaterally, and her neuro exam was unremarkable. So I know this is a lot of information. However, you guys want to split it up and kind of tackle it. Okay, this changes. This changes things. <laughs> yeah, 
I'd say for, I mean, something that stands out to me is, is the temperature. So 101.1 has she been having low grade fevers for three months. So some kind of I mean, infection, definitely something you want to consider. Um, and then also with some of the findings of the scleral icterus and the significant distension, it's like objectively seen on exam. Um, you're thinking uh, liver. Yeah, definitely, definitely some significant findings here on the exam. Was she on room air? Like when she came in, why, why is she on two liters? Good question. Good question. I assume that they noticed she was hypoxic and started her on the music anyway. Okay. Yeah, I mean, she's volume overloaded, it seems like. Um, decreased breath sounds at the base is concerning. I'd like to do some imaging. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think that the fact that she's hypoxic or if she was is actually interesting. Yeah. I mean, that could suggest that the distension is severe. I mean, if it's like so much that it's affecting her, like, lower lung fields um and that's causing her to be hypoxic um that would be pretty significant for sure anna and nick both brought up some really great points and nick mentioned with the abdominal exam and it being significant for distension that also in the setting of the scleral icarus that there might be some signal coming from the liver and then anna pointed out decreased breath sounds um, distended neck veins which suggests a cardiovascular respiratory etiology is there anything that this exam gives you that you think you could tie in with one process? How do you think these things tie into each other? Or are they a bunch of different problems going through? I mean, if there's significant liver disease, then, you know, you have the oncotic, um, you know, low oncotic pressure. And so you can have, you know, that can give you um, like lung disease, shortness of breath. That's going to cause the pitting edema bilaterally. Yeah. Um, and I think that with a significant extension on the abdominal exam, it's telling you that there could be something significant enough to do something that, that, uh, severe. So I would say yeah. maybe like oncotic pressure in the liver could explain all this. What about the, the murmur? Murmurs aren't normal, right? No, they're not. Does this finding add anything or make you worry about anything? I'm also trying to think about how it would play into my thought process. I mean, murmur with the temperature and it's been like, of course, like if this is a three month process, then endocarditis, but that, I mean, with the presentation of abdominal pain, that's a little interesting. So, yeah. Well, uh, holostasoc murmur, the left upper sternal cord, it's a pulmonary valve. And it being holostasoc, what would that suggest? Pulmonary, what is that? Stenosis, pulmonary stenosis, which could explain like the fluid backup yeah. into the systemic circulation. We're getting some right heart signal, yeah. I feel like, also. Boy, isn't this great? So. <laughs> I, I could ask you guys whether you believe in Occam's razor or his victim with this case. I guess one way to think about this, because because this exam is so rich, isn't it? it is. I mean, it, it's funny. The history was the history <laughs> wasn't very rich, and then all of a sudden they plot this exam yeah. in your lap. Yeah, I'm glad we say, got something. <laughs> say no, we usually figure out from the history, not from the physical exam. But the physical exam is a diagnostic. It's really the first diagnostic yeah. test, right? So so after doing after doing it after doing a history. You know, before we send all the blood off, this is this is a diagnostic test, and and there's a lot here, and but but there are certain things that that are starting to move you into one place or another. I, one of the things that that I look at this and say is seems to be across a lot of different systems, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, you know, we want to stick everything in one system. Yeah. But but maybe this is telling you something about the fact that this is multi-systemic. Right. You're getting all these little signals from all these little different places. And we know, you know, listen, that people have thrown out liver disease already. And we know that in reality, it's a systemic disease. But but to me, 
the thing that really sort of strikes me is that there's sort of signal coming from multiple different organ systems here, right? I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing the heart, the lungs, and the abdomen. And if you throw the vitals in, some stuff from the vitals too. We didn't and, even talk about my favorite vital sign, just tachycardic, 107. <laughs> I would focus on that. You can't, you can't fake, you can't fake tachycardia. <laughs> you can fake murmur. You can't fake scleral interest either. True. Yeah, it's tempting to want to like boil this all down to one thing causing all the other signs and symptoms, but it's just so much at this point. Like, where do you look first? One of the first things Nick brought up was the temperature, um, but you didn't seem like you were super worried about an infectious cause. What were some other things that you're thinking that could cause the temperature but aren't necessarily infectious? I mean, so a chronic inflammatory state can cause temperature like that. Um, so you know, you're thinking also like something like a malignancy um, causing like low grade temperatures. So those are sarcoidosis, um, you know, young females. So those are some things that come to mind. Yeah, I think that the one thing that I've kind of learned this year is temperature doesn't necessarily equate to infection and all temperature means is really inflammation. Um, and so I listen to a lot of the clinical problem solvers. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, where'd you get that from? <laughs> <laughs> and I shout out to them. Uh, but they have a great um, little mnemonic that they use when talking about temperature. Um, that's the I made mnemonic. So infection, malignancy, autoimmune drugs, and endocrine. Um, and so those are kind of the different buckets that they use when they see a patient coming in with a fever, just so they're not automatically jumping to infection, making sure that they consider other alternatives. Great, Pearl. Okay. Anything else you want to add to kind of tie this exam together or... You know, you mentioned the liver, we talked about the heart. Any final thoughts as to how everything fits together? You can say you don't know. Maybe it doesn't fit together. I just want to see the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Anna wants imaging. Nick, what do you want? I want labs too. Yeah, I hate to order everything, but I feel like this is, I mean, this is something that would probably necessitate a pretty broad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Any labs you're most excited for? Um, hepatitis serology. Nice. CMP. Can't go wrong with CBC. <laughs> <laughs> Let's draw blood cultures too while we're at it. Yeah. We have the laboratory studies for you. All right, so BMP and CBC are both unremarkable. Um, AST and ALT are normal. LFOS elevated at 273, with the normal being less than 150. Um, T-ability is 5.4, also elevated. Albumin is 2.7, a little low. IMR, 2.0, and then her BNP is 48. A lot of data for you. Well, BNP is pretty high. I mean, it's not surprising, but that's pretty specific for cardiac like volume overload. And low albumin and high INR indicate like liver is not working the way it should. More like um Do you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's not like a hepatocellular pattern of liver injury, but the liver is not making protein as much as it should. So it's the, the synthetic function of the liver. liver. Yeah. I would say the biliary was high. Oh. Is that surprising? What's the direct? Yeah, definitely like differentiating direct versus indirect would be important here. But I guess based on our physical exam, were you guys surprised? Sclera electris. I mean, no, not surprising. You talked a little bit about the hepatocellular um, liver injury and how this doesn't really point to it. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about what would point to more of a hepatocellular pattern and then what her liver labs kind of do point towards? So AST and ALT are normal. If those were elevated like three times the upper normal, that would indicate a hepatocellular pattern injury. The yeah, the so, so the synthetic function of the liver is impaired. I don't know what that really means. Yeah. I don't think it's like a hepatitis anymore. That points me away from that diagnosis. Yeah, I'd say something in the biliary system. 
Yeah. You'd have to think about um, does something downstream of the actual liver itself with uh, elevated alphos, but normally ST and ALT, thinking of all those like autoimmune problems that can happen in the biliary tract and would make sense in this age group. So, but yeah, I'd like, like Anna said, I'd definitely like to see if that bile is direct or indirect. I think that would help us out a lot. We have this elevated BNP, which is, as Anna said, pointing to something more specific to the heart. Then we also have all these liver abnormalities. Um, how did you tie these two things together? Well, the low albumin makes me think that maybe her peripheral edema is related to that rather than mm. the heart. I don't know. I mean, it could be either. It could be both. It could be both. And then you mentioned BNP being pointing towards something specific. What were you thinking of? I mean, BNP means that the ventricles are dilated and filled and stretching. Usually it's pretty sensitive for heart failure, but any sort of volume overloaded state where the heart's, you know, responding to that. So it seems like you're really on the right track here because again, go back and say, so what's the, where's the biggest signal coming from? And the biggest signal that at least I see out there is that that BNP. Everything else is, uh, some of it's a little bit abnormal, but that's really abnormal. Yeah. And, And there's some evidence of liver issues, potentially, because remember, there are other causes of elevated bilirubin, but even those are tough in the face of, a normal CBC, right? Yeah, very true. Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking like, you know, hepatic congestion from heart failure. I, I mean, in my very young career, I have always associated that with elevated ASD. Yeah, like a shock liver. <laughs> yeah, um, or just, yeah, just like a little stress on the liver from from backup because the heart's not moving forward. But but um, yeah, I, I guess with a BMP, you have to think something like that. But I was just thinking ASD and AL2 would be high there. But again, I think you're, I would think that you're on a, place that you can start putting together and that is some sort of a I, I guess I call it a cardiohepatic sort of syndrome yeah. mm-hmm. and what are those things and, and listen you've, you've hit one right on the head right away right you said this is heart failure with right heart failure with liver congestion I want to know how this like connects to her nausea vomiting and diarrhea too I mean it, she's not having well, I guess she's on oxygen, but she didn't present with shortness of breath or edema as her main complaints. What's really bothering her, it seems like, is the loss of appetite and weight loss. And I really like what Anna just did. We were using all this info to narrow our thinking on the heart and the liver. And then she brought us back with these systemic complaints, reminding us that maybe something more broad is causing all of this. Yeah, definitely. All great points. So I was just about to ask, now that we kind of have all these lab abnormalities, I think it's easy to kind of look at them and say what they mean, but then you also have to look back at the patient and say, okay, do these labs explain what the patient's coming in with? And what do you think? Do they explain kind of your clinical picture presentation or are there still some questions that are kind of left unanswered? I would say the fact that she's vomiting, having diarrhea, that's not really explained by the things we've been talking about. I mean, what is it? It's like carcinoid tumors. What are those? Um, the, you know, the, they, they can cause a right heart failure and, mm-hmm. and Great. like diarrhea. Yeah. So, so I mean, just trying to like put things together. Maybe I'm going nowhere. Well, you get the whole no. thing. You get the, you get the, you get the lumen sacs endocarditis. Yeah. The whole thing. That was great. Um, but yeah, I know. I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but I feel like with, with the initial presentation, I, I, that's makes, yeah. I, I mean, her physical exam and lab findings correlate very well. I want to know when she know. I mean, I don't even know. She did notice her sclerotic and edema, but like if how long those have been going on, if she's noticed them, if they like started around the same time as all of her other symptoms. 
anything about the CDC and the BNP being normal that surprised you? He points away from infectious cause of her, I guess, fever and the rest of her presentation. It's nice that her BNP is normal. Not yeah. <laughs> she kind of gives us a clue into her vomiting and diarrhea though right like yeah at least in the severity of it exactly yeah. yeah so with all this weight loss but then a bmp that doesn't necessarily look like she's vomiting or having enough diarrhea to cause significant electrolyte derangements it kind of makes you think maybe this weight loss is kind of coming from somewhere different versus like more of the knowledge origin picture mm-hmm. all things to keep in mind it's just managing <laughs> all right. thank you so we got some pictures for you. Okay, so we got a CT of the abdomen that showed marked ascites with patent hepatic vasculature, severely dilated IVC, and cardiomegaly. Uh, we did a diagnostic paracentesis, which showed no evidence of SVP. The total protein of the fluid was 2.4, and the SAG was 1.4. And then lastly, we got a TTE, which showed diffuse hypokinesis and an injection fraction of 25%. So again, lots of data. Yeah, the CT abdomen knows exactly what I would have expected. So it just confirms there's some hepatic congestion. Yeah. Most likely due to a heart failure. So, injection fraction of 25% is unfortunate. Yeah, and a 33 year old. Yeah. That's not normal. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I, like, why, why does she have diffuse hypokinesis? Why is her injection fraction 25%? That seems to be like a, could be like a primary cause of, what's, of all this that's going on. So, mm-hmm. I'm Really, that's the biggest thing to me is the, the TTE here. Um, and then the other things seem to be possibly like a, a consequence of that. Mm-hmm. And you'll I'll also have to refresh on my my SAG. Yeah. Because um, I, I mean, like, is this like transitative or that's what I'm thinking, but I forgot the numbers. It's probably from the, the backup from the, from the heart failure. I definitely need to refresh my SAG. <laughs> too. I, I have 1.1 stuck in my mind as like being the differentiator. Yep. But I can't remember. I'd have to think through it. It's less than... That would mean decalc <laughs> serum albumin over the acidic fluid. Serum yeah. When we speak of the almost transidative and exudative, right. this is a trans. This would be a trans. This there is a transidative. If it's really high protein in the ascites, that indicates that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So we were saying that the SAG being one point four suggests a transidative process, which would ex- which is what you would expect with diffuse hypokinesis and. Very low ejection fraction. Yeah, nothing too surprising here. Yeah, definitely. I think you guys did a really good job kind of saying, all right, we have the CT that's showing the ascites, what we thought it would show, and now we have this heart failure, um, which explains the ascites. But now the problem is, why does this 33-year-old woman have an ejection fraction of 25%? An otherwise healthy lady, no real family history. Um, So we kind of, we have all this data that is tying together really well, but we're still asking ourselves, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about the SAG. um, So it's one of those things that, at least for me, I've had a, kind of relearn and teach myself a million times <laughs> but it is kind of nice because i think that just by looking at the word sag you can kind of reason your way through it um so it's the serum ascites albumin gradient and so exactly what it sounds like it's how much albumin's in the serum how much albumin's in the ascites and then you kind of subtract the difference between them and so the albumin should be in the serum that's where we want it to be we want it to keep all the volume intravascularly um and so in a high sag ascites you have something that's transidative because the albumin in the ascites fluid is low which is what you'd expect if there's just high pressure um so with a low sag ascites that's when you kind of start thinking about like malignancies you can see it with tb nephrotic syndrome um so kind of similar when you're thinking about like pleural effusions and what causes more of an exudative pleural effusion you see that more with malignancy infection so i've kind of told myself to take a step back and talk myself through it. And usually I can kind of reason my way through the sag. So. That reminds me, did she get a X-ray of her chest? She had decreased breath sounds bilaterally. It's not, not going to be a surprise. 
x-ray. Yeah. What, would, what would you see on the x-ray now that you, you can use your teeth, the info from the TTE and then some of what was captured on the CT abdomen? What would you expect on an x-ray to see? Fluid back up into the lungs. Yeah. Yeah. The heart would probably be pretty big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do you have anything that comes to mind, I guess, as to why this 33-year-old lady has such bad heart failure? It's a very broad question, but and what are some things that you think of causing heart failure in a young, otherwise healthy female? I mean, pulmonary hypertension, something you want to think about. Um, yeah. She did have that. Oh, it's all Yes. And, you know, also thinking of like some infiltrative process. So mm-hmm. sarcoidosis, I'm not sure how common that is, but I know that, you know, some kind of generalized infiltrative process could cause it. And then, amyloidosis. Yeah, sure. amyloidosis for sure. Scary things like myocarditis or um, something that's like, a, like infecting, infecting the heart muscle um, would be rare, but when it's a 33 year old it's already going to be rare probably any other labs or imaging that you would be wanting at this point you might not have one for you <laughs> in an ideal world what else would you kind of want to help narrow down your differential like like Anna said i'd like to get blood cultures even though we think infection might be less likely just to close the loop on that yeah good what are we missing if we're concerned about pulmonary hypertension i want to know more about the pulmonary artery <laughs> sure what how would you uh Want to know more about it? What is that test? Well, yeah, we can get a, a right heart cath. <laughs> oh yeah, right heart get, some, get some pressures. You cannot. There. That's so. That's the gold standard for. I'm on palm right now, so I got to take a second here to talk this out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, right heart cath is the gold standard for pulmonary hypertension, but other imaging can include it. You can see echocardiographic evidence, and then especially CT chest evidence. Yeah. When you're looking at like the the soft tissue or palm or lung windows. The radiologist will actually measure the width of the pulmonary artery and that can give a clue into super dilated, maybe this is pulmonary hypertension. And then again, on the TTE, it can actually estimate the mean pulmonary artery pressure. There are some clues before you have to go some, towards something invasive like a right heart cath. Mm-hmm. Just going back a little bit to the physical exam, I think we kind of talked about how everything does fit together pretty well for the most part. Um, but the fever and the tachycardia, does this fit into your picture of Kind of the heart failure and liver disease, or is that still kind of an outlier to you? I have a hard time just saying it's an outlier. <laughs> 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 one degree fever, or 100 or whatever it was, definitely still a fever. Endocarditis still something you got to be worried about. So, yeah, no, I definitely. I think Megan laid a great foundation for you guys earlier with the eye made mnemonic in that setting of an elevated temperature. And then, based on everything we've talked about on the data we've gathered, why don't you guys turn to that mnemonic and see what how your thought process would fit along with it? Okay, I infectious. Talked about so endocarditis, myocarditis there. Yeah, but normal white blood cells. Yeah, I'm not like really glommed onto that one. Yeah. Also, I would assume the TTE would show some kind of like vegetation. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just having hypokinesis here, so you'd think with the clinical picture that it'd be something significant enough to show up. And you could do a TEE for a better, yeah. even better visualization of the heart if you wanted, but. Yes with just the low ejection fraction. Yeah, I think that's a good pearl too, is that a TTE itself can't actually rule out um, agitation. So here we don't have a TTE, but I've listened to other cases before where you can be tricked with the TTE looking normal and ends up being something there. So, all right, so you talked a little bit about infection, um, malignancy, and that's a very broad kind of bucket, but anything specific you'd be thinking about malignancy-wise? I don't think it's malignancy. <laughs> that's fair. That's good. I think this is just, you know, heart failure which is not caused by cancer. So yeah, malignancy is less likely, especially if, if we're thinking it's primarily cardiac um, and not like abdominal or something, it would just be so rare. And I can't really think of much off the top of my head. Yeah. And then autoimmune, anything that comes to mind. I mean, you always have to get a TSH 
thyroid disorders, lupus. Yeah. Can always be lupus. Can always be lupus. <laughs> Yeah. This was pre-COVID. We forgot. Yeah. <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah. Could be COVID. Yeah, definitely could be COVID. But yeah. Lupus and COVID. Yeah. Lupus, syphilis, <laughs> all the imitators over the years. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good point. She's like the perfect Asian demographic to have some sort of autoimmune something pop up. So. Yeah. Um, drug-wise, she didn't have much, just that occasional Tylenol. Um, and then endocrine is the last bucket. So we talked a little bit about thyroid. Anything else? You talked about carcinoid syndrome a little bit, which is yeah. a good thought. Mm-hmm. And we're like, like pregnancy can cause heart failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, do we get pregnancy? <laughs> I don't know. If, it, if this is just pregnancy, I'd, I'd be, got all the way here. It'd be shocking. <laughs> Why did you do that to us? But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, if I, this I, is what pregnancy looks like, <laughs> <laughs> count me out. <laughs> I think that was a great discussion that we had about that. And I think we can move on to the next follow up. All right. So you asked for a TSH. You got it. 0. 0.044 with a free T4 of 5.5. We may have the normal values in here, but the TSH is low and the D4 is high. It almost seems like the fever and tachycardia <laughs> related to a thyroid problem separate from the heart failure. That's my first thought. Like, this makes sense with those two points we have on the physical exam. What do the labs suggest? We're just reasoning through the labs. D4 is high, TSH low, so hyperthyroid. That could also cause the weight loss. When we're thinking about the different kind of buckets of heart failure, how do you divide those up? Like right, left, or both? So based on the echo that we have. <laughs> right, left, then both. <laughs> One. Yeah, I guess now we're kind of in a position where we have this hyperthyroidism, and now we're struggling to tie everything together. Yeah. Kind of thinking that it probably all does fit, but now we're just trying to figure out how exactly it fits. We said before, the heart failure seems to be causing the liver congestion. So kind of thinking back to the heart failure, what's your schema? Kind of thinking about... Is it systolic heart failure? Is it diastolic heart failure? And then what are the different causes? Contraction fractions, 25%. Sounds like a systolic heart failure. Yeah. What are the common causes of heart failure that you guys have seen? Systolic heart failure. It sounds like we're in that. Sounds like we're in that bucket now. She had diffuse hypokinesis mm-hmm. on her echocardiogram with an ejection fraction of 25%. Probably fair to say is a diffuse systolic heart failure. Yeah. So why the heck does she have that, and why why is she hyperthyroid? I mean, hypertension can cause systolic heart failure, but she didn't have hypertension. Infarction can cause systolic heart failure, but she had diffuse hypokinesis. Yeah. It wasn't localized exactly. anywhere. So I have a hard hard time justifying that it would be that, especially in, in a young female. You mentioned some infiltrative stuff earlier. And amyloidosis, sarcoidosis. Sure, all of them can do that. Yeah. And the fact that it's, yeah, diffuse hypokinesis for sure would support uh, something infiltrative. Mm-hmm. Tying now, tying that into the, the thyroid, to be honest, nothing's like coming to mind. What would be your schema for hyperthyroidism? A lot of things can cause hyperthyroidism. What are some that come to mind and how would you tie them back into this patient? Autoimmune, Graves disease. She definitely fits the picture for someone who would have an autoimmune disorder guys are doing great. I think Kevin sort of hit on one thing, and that is, and maybe that differential diagnosis for hyperthyroidism is not as big as, as sure, I can come up with all sorts of unusual things. Yeah. And we should talk about them. We could talk about a 33-year-old woman who's, at least by history, I guess I'll put this in the subacute, maybe. I mean, she would, she says she was well three months ago, whether it was really six months ago or not, who knows, and start thinking about what causes, what are the, maybe, but that's like, what, what are the causes of hyperthyroidism that you guys think about? You think about 
autoimmune hyperthyroidism, of Graves disease. What else? I guess that would you thyroiditis. So thyroiditis, sure. That's a that's a great one. That that is that that is one. So thyroiditis can do it. Yeah. Thyroid nodules can do it. Right, people can have hot can have hot nodules, which clearly does it. It'll take thyroid. You know, she doesn't take any medicine, but God knows maybe she's got her hands on synthroid or something yeah. like that. But if she had her hands on, yeah. It, she could, I guess she could potentially have that, right? Because, yeah. Because that would, that would turn up this way on these right. labs, right? Yeah. So yeah, kind of thinking about heart failure, especially with systolic, you think of it as anything that's kind of putting stress on the heart. We talk about hypertension. Unlikely that this 33-year-old has had such bad uncontrolled hypertension that now she's presenting this like acute onset heart failure. Talk a little bit about ischemia, which is a really common cause of heart failure. But again, we think unlikely probably that she's having ischemia. Is there anything else that kind of stuck out to you that could be putting stress on the heart that might explain the, the new onset heart failure in her? You mean besides pregnancy? Besides pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of lung disease or heart disease. So definitely like having some kind of lung disease, putting stress on the heart, but you'd think that'd be more yeah, right-sided instead of generalized. So we see her vitals. She has the fever. She has the tachycardia. She's been having these symptoms for three months. So we can kind of assume that these vitals have probably been going on for a decent amount of time. Um, is there anything that worries you about having a fever for three months, being tachycardic for three months? Some kind of generalized inflammatory or infectious process affecting the heart for sure. And we're, we're pushing you guys for yeah. sure. And it's because you're doing so well and great. And we're about to move on to the last piece of information that will reveal the final diagnosis. And guess what? It's okay to say you don't know. <laughs> I want you to know that. It's totally okay. This is an unusual thing. It was a knowledge gap of mine when I first saw this case, but I, I am going to ask you to at least try to narrow what you think is going on before we reveal the final diet. I think it's autoimmune. I don't know what it is, but I think it's autoimmune because I don't think it's infectious. All right. Perfect. And she's got hyperthyroid labs. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> How about you, Nick? I, I, would, I would agree that, that it's autoimmune. I mean, her age, her, yeah, the thyroid labs here, the the global involvement of the entire heart tissue. Yeah. So yeah, we'll go with autoimmune. We'll see, see if we're wrong or what it is. All right. So we have the final lab. She has elevated levels of anti-TPO and thyroid stimulating antibodies. Um, with a final diagnosis of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, secondary to Graves disease. So you guys are right on it. <laughs> you, you didn't want to say it, but that's what you thought all along, right? Yeah. I, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, we know the thyroid and its effects on the heart, but I, I guess I never just really tied, tied it to like full uh, heart failure, yeah. causing like systemic symptoms, causing vomiting and diarrhea or so all that was. Definitely. And so this is um, kind of what we like to do here is do atypical presentations of some common diseases. So in terms of hypothyroidism, Graves is a common common cause of it. Um, but this full-blown heart failure with uh, liver congestion, not something that you would typically see with Graves' disease. So she's not coming in with a classic heat intolerance, sweating, palpitations, everything that you kind of get on your step one and step two questions for these Graves' disease patients. So, no bulging eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> no it does go eyeballs. back to say that, sort of as we said before, it is a systemic disease. And, 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 and I think both of you guys sort of you know hit right away on the fact that it's an autoimmune disease. It's an inflammatory condition, and it can present, you know, yeah, you want to say it presents, I might, I'm sweating or this or that. I don't want to say it's super common because this is an uncommon presentation of Graves' disease, but Graves' disease presents uncommonly a lot. Okay? And so, so I've seen cases, at least we have 
famous case that was presented here years ago where a woman returned from Africa and she had episodic fevers. This was in the New York Times, for God's sakes, because it was they kept treating her for malaria for God's sakes. They do thick smears on her and, and they wouldn't see any malaria. And they say, but she has malaria. And they treat her and treat her and treat her. Finally, she went and saw her doctor who knew her and said, oh, my God, her, you know, she's shaking and things like that. And it was Graves disease, for God's sakes. Wow. And, and, you know, there's what's her name? She was an Olympian, a famous Olympic athlete. She was uh, one of the sprinters and she had Graves disease for I mean, she was sick for like a year and a half before they figured out she had Graves disease, for God's sakes. We like should put her. TSH on the basic labs like CBC, CMP, TSH. <laughs> yeah, but again, the fact that it was that it's a systemic illness and we'd like to, and, and it goes back to your mnemonic, right? Yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. which is that you know, always got to think about endocrinopathies as, as, as causing these things. So, yeah, I agree. A very atypical presentation of it, but like you said, things often present atypically. And I think I've seen them just order a TSH and a T4 on so many people that come into the hospital where they're not really sure what it is because <laughs> the thyroid just affects so many different organ systems. And so it can kind of manifest in so many different ways. Um, so I think this is a great example of one of the or many of the things that um, thyroid disease can do. So I'll just close out with a couple of teaching points, just talking about Graves' disease in general. So it is an interesting disease. You have this autoantigen against the TSH receptor, but it actually stimulates the TSH receptor. And I personally can't think of anything else where there's an antibody to something that stimulates it. I'm not sure if there's things that I'm just not thinking about. <laughs> but, um, and so that's why you kind of get this enlarged thyroid um, with Graves' disease, which is atypical because usually you associate that with hypothyroid states because you have elevated levels of TSH that are stimulating the thyroid gland. It's kind of an important thing to note that having thyromegaly doesn't necessarily say that this is hypo or hyperthyroidism because you can see it in both. And so lab-wise, you have the thyrotropin receptor antibody, which is pretty specific for autoimmune thyroid disease. But you can actually see this in Hashimoto's, which I didn't know. So in about 10% of patients with Hashimoto's will be positive for this, um, but it is more frequently associated with Graves' disease. And that's kind of in contrast to the antibodies to thyroglobulin and thyroid prosidase, which can be seen in the normal population actually somewhat frequently, but also just seen in kind of a general autoimmune thyroid disease. So treatment-wise, I'm just thinking of kind of the rapid symptomatic relief versus more of a long-term decrease in hormone synthesis. So beta blocker is great for rapid relief. Um, they use atenolol um, most frequently, it looks like, because you get this beta-1 selective and you can give it just in a single daily dose. Um, it does a great job providing symptomatic, um, obviously doesn't address the underlying issue. So for that, you can do antithyroid drugs, um, radioiodine ablation, or surgery. Um, and those are conversations that you have with the patient. They all kind of come with their different risks and benefits. So moving forward into more specifics of this case, um, the heart failure and hyperthyroidism so is something that is really interesting and not something you see often, but you can have what they like to call arrhythmia-induced cardiomyopathy. And so that's kind of what we're seeing in this lady. So she's been tachycardic for probably three months on end now. And the same way that being hypertensive for a long time um, can put stress on your heart and having ischemia can put stress on your heart, having your heart beat at such a fast rate for so long can also put stress on your heart. So in this case, it led her to have just full-blown heart failure with an ejection fraction of um, 25 and so T3 is actually transported into the cardiac myocytes, um, which is how it works. It has these chronotropic and ionotropic effects, so it increases the rate and the contractility. Um, and so it's a pretty potent um, hormone when it comes to its effects on the heart. And so you'll usually see heart failure as a result of long-standing, untreated AFib or sinus tachycardia. Um, so another good pearl is patients coming in with AFib like young patients that you don't really have any radiology for it. Um, hyperthyroidism is always something to consider. Another interesting thing that I learned when I was reading up on this is that hyperthyroidism is actually been associated with pulmonary hypertension. 
Um, and so it can have these effects just on the pulmonary vasculature specifically. And they're not sure exactly why something to do with kind of increased vasoconstrictive effects and maybe decreased vasodilatory effects. Um, but you can see isolated right heart failure just as a result of the pulmonary hypertension. So she looked like she had right and left heart failure, but it was a interesting piece of information that I learned. Most importantly, that once you treat the thyroid disease, you actually see good resolution in the symptoms. Um, so the prognosis is typically pretty good for these patients. I'm not sure exactly how she did, but based on what I was reading for the most part, they actually do recover a lot of their cardiac function. Last thing, just the hepatic congestion that we saw. Um, so you guys did a really good job kind of being able to say how these liver labs were connected to the heart failure. And so it can do a lot of things. You have this decreased cardiac output, which kind of creates the backflow and creates the hepatic congestion. You can also get kind of the opposite side of that where you have shock liver um, from impaired kind of output. And so typically that's associated with a much higher AST and ALT, which our patient didn't have. So pointed a little bit more towards like a hepatic congestion picture versus like a shock liver picture. Um, but since Graves is an autoimmune disease, it's associated with a lot of other autoimmune diseases. So you can see liver disease also just because they have PBC, they have autoimmune hepatitis. Um, estimated that about 10% of patients have a coexisting autoimmune disorder. So a couple of different reasons that you can end up with these LFT abnormalities. Great teaching points again. Great job presenting this case, supplementing it throughout. And to Anna and Nick, you guys did fantastic. Just so having known this case, it's the person did get better. It took a couple couple months um, and, and totally and completely recovered. Wow. So, so uh, how was she treated? She was treated for grave disease. Was she? She was treated with medication, or she was treated with medication and then radioactive iodine. She's young. Remember, you got to think about young giving young people radioactive iodine and being careful around that. But no, she was treated with. She, she was treated with sort of the usual. She was treated with antithyroid. Actually, she was given beta blockers, I think, initially. And sure. Treated with antithyroid medicine and then uh, ultimately got radioactive iodine and literally totally got 100% better with this. Wow. The, the, the other thing that it, I, I, it does mean, I was thinking about the whole time, and that is causes of murmurs that aren't cardiac in nature. Mm. And, and, you know, and I guess I throw it, all into sort of the hypermetabolic state yeah. syndromes, one of which is anemia, obviously, yep. but the other one is 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 thyroid disease. And if you see enough people that have this, and and although this is an unusual manifestation, Graves' disease is really it is really, common. Mm -hmm. and uh, you will definitely see it whatever you go into. Yeah, and uh, and and you'll hear because because they're tachycardic and because they're hypermetabolic people, they develop these. They develop these murmurs. The other thing they develop is they develop thyroid buoys, which yeah. you got to be careful separating from separating from a regular murmur. And and if you and you'll never hear it unless you listen, unless you listen. <laughs> and so I, I got a story for you guys. Okay, so so here's my story, and and so this goes back to uh, to 30 years ago. Okay, so this is May 4th, 1991. This is President George H. W. Bush. Okay. Uh, so Bush the older, not Bush the young, younger, and he was out. He was a he was a he was a, a jogger. He's out on a jog, and all of a sudden he develops shortness of breath and chest tightness. Okay, and he he goes back to the White House, and he's seen by the physician. I guess they have a physician there, and he has an irregular heartbeat. So they take him by helicopter over the, over to the naval Bethesda Naval Hospital. Um, he's totally fine. He walks in. But when they hook him up to the uh, to the EKG machine, his heart rate's 150, and he's an AFib. Okay, so he had he, he had an echo. His echo was better than hers, <laughs> and uh, her echo was normal. 
And so what they did, because it's 1991 at that time, they they started on digoxin, they started on cocannamide <laughs> at that time. And uh, they, they, they had a defibrillator next to him because he's the president. <laughs> and I, and I can't even remember who the who his vice president was. I think it was Dan Quayle, maybe. Oh no, that's that's Reagan. I don't know. But it is Dan. It was it was Dan Quayle, and 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 the press corps was nervous at that time. I, I guess I'll say that. So anyhow, so the next day, um, he's back in sinus rhythm, um, but like three hours later, he goes back into AFib, and uh, and and so the everybody's in a tizzy, and uh, they they you know they're keeping him on the the ditch and the brocanamide and they let him go back to the white house with a with an event monitor and the defibrillator sitting next to him so over the space of the next couple of days he starts feeling worse but he's worried about the hand whale i guess but but all of a sudden somebody notices that he has a very fine tremor of his hands and uh, and and that when they put him on the scale he'd lost 13 pounds over this over this over the space of the last couple of weeks so anyhow, so now it's two weeks later and the White House announces that uh, that 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 he has uh, that that he has an overactive thyroid gland. And that's the reason why he's had the erratic heart rhythm. Um, so here we go. The president goes on TV, says the good news is that once the thyroid is corrected, that means there's no problem on the heart because the thyroid is connected to the heart bone, to the liver bone. Right. And to, the, <laughs> to all those other bones. And he's going to be all right. So he's readmitted to the hospital. Um, he's given treatment for Graves' disease. Wow. Okay, so he got a course of radio. He has a course of radioactive iodine. Um, he, he also got. They, they gave him some some uh, SSKI. They gave him some. They gave him some saturated potassium iodine to prevent thyroid storm. In it. Mm. Um, and, and which, by the way, worked well. Eventually, he, he went on. He went on Synthroid for the rest of his life. But but that's not the end of the story. Okay, because it actually turns out that that a year and a half earlier. His wife was diagnosed with Graves' disease. Wow. Okay, and uh, she had, although she had ex ex ophthalmos, and that's not the end of the story because <laughs> shortly thereafter, Millie was the the president's dog developed developed lupus, <laughs> and so there was this whole tizzy over whether there was some contaminant in the White House that caused all of the all of the people living there to develop autoimmune diseases, and so they like literally they started to you know they tore the White House apart looking for this. Oh my god! Um, and and ultimately they decided it was just a, a coincidence, and uh, you know it was just you know for some odd reason you know the president and his wife and their dog had all developed these autoimmune conditions over the space of a couple months. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> well, I know that. Note. Thanks Otto and Nick for coming on. And thanks Megan for leading us in your first case. Thanks for having me. It's fine. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time. <laughs>